The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome, everybody. This is Squawk Box. Let's get into your headlines. Theresa May offers to resign as British Prime Minister in an attempt to get her Brexit deal approved. But the deadlock here in Westminster continues after Parliament rejects a series of alternative Brexit options. US stocks slip while Asian shares mostly follow Wall Street lower as the 10-year Treasury yield touches a new 14-month low. China vows to be more open to foreign investment as US and Chinese trade negotiators meet in Beijing for another round of high-level trade talks. Saudi state-owned oil giant Ramco buying a majority stake in petrochemicals firm Sabic uh, from the kingdom's wealth fund in a deal worth more than $69 billion. At this hour, Lyft raises the price range for its IPO, putting the ride-hailing company in sight of a valuation of up to $24.3 billion. Bayer is ordered to pay $80 million in damages in another cancer case related to its Roundup weed killer. And Italy's former Prime Minister Matteo Renzi tells CNBC he's lucky he worked with Obama and not President Trump. Morning, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, something smells around here, and it's not Jeff's London gentleman aftershave. Uh, that's for a lot of you practitioners who know films about 70s uh, newsrooms. Now, look, it's not that. Something smells, and I'm going to just talk you through what I think it is. Now, I'm just going to leave it there for you to linger, to inhale through your nostrils as well. Look at these markets behind me. Okay, we saw a little bit of a downtick on the equities yesterday, but by and large, as we crawl into the end of the quarter, I just want to paint some facts for you, okay? Facts. And we could look at the US yields uh, while we're doing this as well. Germany yesterday sold 10-year buns. What do you think the yield was? You know, you want a bit of income. Nothing. It was negative. For the first time since autumn 2016, Germany sold bonds at a negative yield yesterday. All right? You've also got the 10-year, three-month inversion, which apparently smells and spells doom along the line. You've got the seven-year yield in the US. We don't often talk about the seven-year. At its lowest level since the 1st of December 2017, you've got 10 trillion dollars worth of negative yielding asset out there in the bond markets, okay? So that's painting something, isn't it? That's painting a picture, yeah? Bonds are through the roof. Yields are through the floor. Then we look at equities as well. We can put the Asian equities up if you want in the meantime as well. But um, the point I want to make is this. Quarter to date, and, uh, and forget about last year, that's history. Quarter to date, the Dow is up 10%. The S&P is up 12%. The DAX is up 8.2%. Even the FTSE blighted by all kinds of Brexit concerns is up 7.2%. Right? So first bit of evidence, bonds through the roof. Second bit of evidence, equities through the roof as well. By the way, moving in. Uh, different directions for different reasons in terms of the, the income from them as well. Plus, and my third piece of evidence is oil. Yeah, oil's a very good barometer of global demand, growth and fears and trade and what have you. What do you think WTI is in this quarter? Up 31%. So let me just encapsulate. You can have a look at the opening calls if you like as we go on. Uh, let me encapsulate this for you as well. Great fears in the market, in the global economy being expressed in the bond market. Great ebullience being expressed 
in the oil market. Great ebullience being expressed in economic, uh, corporate profits and performance. What does that say to you about dislocation, about dysfunctional, about very, very strange markets? I think it says a lot. We'll come back to this later on. In the meantime, sterling traded lower on Wednesday as Theresa May has offered to resign as Prime Minister. If her deal is passed, there's the big caveat, failed to secure the support of the DUP uh, and some other key MPs. Steve Baker, did you hear him? Oh, my goodness me. Tearing the house down, really. Anyway, Mrs May told her own backbench MPs, her own ones, she would step down ahead of the second phase of talks that will focus on the UK's relationship with the EU. Meanwhile, eight motions... Eight uh, motions were tabled in Parliament yesterday because this is when Parliament took back control, took back control of the Brexit process. The only problem is they failed. They failed, the parliamentarians, because all of these alternatives, not one of them got a majority. I mean, some of them were less unpopular than others. And I think the one that is most interesting, if you're trying to find a majority, is the customs union. But Willem, has been trying to make sense of this extraordinary day. And I won't even ask you about Steve Baker's ludicrous comments yesterday as well. But let's concentrate on what Mrs May may be trying to do, possibly tomorrow, and whether the parliamentarians are going back to the table again on Monday. Willem, make sense of it if you can. All right, so we had at the beginning of yesterday's proceedings in the House of Commons 16 different ideas that various groups of lawmakers in the House of Commons had suggested should be debated and voted on. The Speaker of the House of Commons chose eight of those and they ran the gamut of Brexit options essentially. Those were then put to a vote in a rather unusual manner, basically MPs, lawmakers taking pens and papers and ticking boxes against the options they liked or did not like. And those were then counted up and the results were relayed to the House of Commons at around 9.30, 9.45 last night, London time. And what those results showed was there was no clear majority, but at least two of the options got quite close to a majority. One, as you mentioned, involving customs union membership and the other talking about a confirmatory public vote, essentially a public referendum on whatever deal is decided upon versus another option most likely remaining in the European Union. Now, that was meant to be Parliament's first bite at the apple. And what the men and women behind this effort had said was they did not expect to see a very clear result after last night. And that's why they would like a second attempt on Monday, presumably to whittle down those eight options even further and try and concentrate lawmakers' minds to try and get at least some kind of consensus on the next way forward. That's all because Parliament has twice defeated Theresa May's deal. Now, what she's trying to do, if she does try and bring her deal back to a vote as soon possibly as tomorrow, is persuade members of her own party that it is worth backing the deal in order to avoid a softer version of Brexit or no Brexit at all. And yesterday, she took a rather significant step in trying to win support from those who've been opposed to the deal by saying, under pressure, that she would not lead negotiations for the second phase of Brexit talks as Prime Minister. Those could be as soon as May, June or July, because she recognised there was dissatisfaction in the party about the way that she'd led the first set of negotiations around the divorce deal. And so by making that offer, she's hoping to win over dozens of Conservative lawmakers who previously voted against her Brexit deal, 
The challenge remains, though, that she has a very slim governing majority, thanks to this small Northern Irish party, the Democratic Unionist Party. And they, after her statements last night, came out very categorically and said at this stage, they are still not prepared to back her Brexit deal, once again, because of the Irish backstop. We feel very fundamentally that the backstop in that withdrawal agreement makes it impossible for us to sign up to the withdrawal agreement. And you know what? I regret that because we wanted to get a deal, a deal that worked for the whole of the United Kingdom, a deal that worked for Northern Ireland. But now we're in a situation where we cannot sign up to the withdrawal agreement and it's all because the Prime Minister decided to go for that backstop way back in December of 2017. So this tightrope Theresa May has been walking for months now seems to stretch on into the distance because by saying that she will go, the thinking inside Parliament is that her successor will no doubt be someone who is in favour of Brexit, more so even than she was, and probably in favour of a slightly harder Brexit. And that will not help to bring over the opposition Labour MPs that she will need to make up for those lost DUP votes that we heard Arlene Foster, the leader of the DUP, talking about just there. So that's the quandary the Prime Minister now faces right now. Having offered to leave, there's no guarantee this deal will get through. If it doesn't get through, that leaves her position very, very tenuous and questions about what happens next. Once again, one imagines in the hands of those lawmakers who last night could not come up with a clear winner alternative decision. OK, Willem, thank you very much for that. We'll come back to you a little later. Alexis Garetti joins us, Head of Macroeconomic Research at Eula Hermes. Um, Alexis, welcome to the programme. Let me just start by asking you, as I looked at your notes this morning, 70% probability that a deal will be agreed this year on Brexit. Are you feeling that confident after the performance we saw last night in Parliament? Yeah, uh, let's say that we maintain that uh, probability because... Uh, uh, actually, the, 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 the Parliament has shown its uh, incapacity to, uh, to find someone to, uh, to replace uh, Theresa May. And so we, uh, we uh, persist and sign for this uh, 70% probability of uh, uh, an, a longer extension of the Article uh, 50. So let's talk a little bit about the economic uh, and financial consequences of the negotiation as you see them at the moment. Um, Steve made the, the point that we did see a little bit of weakening of sterling uh, through the last 24 hours, but, you know, we've only fallen to 131.91 on the dollar. So it seems like we're still in a very tight range. Do you anticipate we'll see a breakout of the pound in either direction soon? No, no, no. We, uh, we don't have a strong bet on the direction of the, of the pound. Uh, let's say that the, the current valuation of, the, of that currency reflects persisting doubt about, uh, about the, the outcome of those uh, negotiations. And uh, let's say that I would like to insist on the uh, um, persisting low value of the, of the pound, which at the beginning of the Brexit negotiation were an advantage for the British economy. But uh, we have realized now with the poor performance of the British economy, that uh, this weakness is uh, for sure a disadvantage over the medium term. Alexis, let me ask you about the leadership change, because Theresa May, the Prime Minister, has put her job on the line if there's support for her Brexit deal.
but it does raise the prospect that uh, there'll be a different Tory leader. Perhaps Jeremy Corbyn can find a way to the leadership as well, the opposition. And the one thing that the market has been concerned about has been a Jeremy Corbyn government and what that would represent versus, uh, say, all the uncertainty around Brexit, which is the worst case scenario for investors. How is that now affecting the fortunes if there were to be a leadership change? Do you think that injects another element of uncertainty? No, uh, of, of course, what you, uh, what you mentioned is a, a fundamental element of uh, uncertainty. And uh, what I would like to uh, re-insist on is that uh, this is not good for, for the British economy. And in the case that we have a hard Brexit, it would mean, in our view, uh, a significant increase of insolvencies of in the corporate sector in the UK by 20%. So uh, this is uh, definitely that kind of persisting uncertainty, uh, uh, a clear uh, shock. For, for the British economy. So the longer the uncertainty and uh, the worse is the situation for the British economy. Um, Alexis, just a quickie from me. I was making the point, I don't know if you heard earlier on, that um, certain assets are moving in certain contrary directions as far as I'm concerned. The DAX is up 8.2% this year at the same time that Bund yields have gone negative for the 10 year as well. Does that worry you that there's a disparity or a dislocation somewhere? Uh, there is a clear explanation uh, in that discrepancy between uh, what we see on the fixed income market and the equity market. This is uh, very simple, actually. This is uh, what we see is the perception by the market that we are heading toward uh, a scenario of a soft landing. So there are two forces. There is the sentiment that uh, for sure we, are, we have a global deceleration of growth, which is uh, materialized indeed by a lower level of inflation. Uh, all the central banks have uh, all significantly revised on the downside their uh, anticipation uh, regarding uh, uh, inflation. Um, but at the same time, and this is uh, reflected by the good performance of the equity markets, uh, investors have the sentiment that there is a safety net. And so this is what we really describe in our different uh, studies. We describe the fact that there are strong safety nets, even if uh, we bet on a central scenario of uh, soft landing, uh, soft landing for the global uh, economy. Alexis, um I don't understand what you just said. I don't understand how you can possibly say to me that negative bond yields can equal soft landing. Yeah, I mean, uh, this is the, the direct consequences of the new stance of communication of the uh, BC, uh, ECB and also the, the direct consequence of the easing in the stance of the communication of the Fed. So what we see for, for the Fed and the ECB, but this is also true for central banks of uh, emerging economy, there is a, a radical shift in the orientation of the monetary policy. So the very low level of uh, interest rate is uh, just reflecting the fact that we are now in a significant easing mode for major central banks at a global, uh, at a global level. And this for sure, this easing of the monetary policy in a coordinated manner, I would say, at the global level, is for sure uh, an element which will bring some stability over the medium term. Alexis, uh, thank you very much for that. We're going to cross back out to you a little bit later on and talk about China and trade. Alexis Garatti, head of macroeconomic research at Julia Emes. Now, former Italian Prime Minister Matteo Renzi has hit out at the political leadership in the UK. Speaking to CBC in an exclusive interview, Renzi said the inability of the UK to solve Brexit is a bad page in history. I, I grew up with a great idea about uh, British politicians. I grew up with the, the model of Tony Blair and Third Way. I grew up with an unbelievable icon of Winston Churchill, one of the most important politicians around the world in the last three centuries. And now I saw, I see a political leadership in UK not so 
great, not so high level. And please, this is true for Theresa May, but this is true also for the leader of opposition, Jeremy Carbyn. The inability to solve the problem of Brexit, it's a very bad page in the history of UK. Wasn't this the same man who failed at his own reforms in his own country and then left his job? He's now criticising the UK, which is going through its own reforms? Oh, well, you, you're elder statesman now, you right. see. So um, when you look at uh, George Osborne or Tony Blair or Alistair Campbell or any of these people whose political career is in the rearview mirror, right. they can pontificate at length like sages as to how it would have been done better in their time. But, of mm. course, there is a reason why all of them are history now, and right. that's because, quite frankly, they all had their, their nadir in their own well, careers. I think you're wrong. You've only got to look at the stability we've got in the Italian political scene to know that he... Oh, oh God, yeah, you've got Salvini and yes. De Maio. Yes. Yeah, anyway, we've got more of them. We? we have plenty more coming your way with our exclusive interview with the former Italian Prime Minister Matteo Renzi later in the show. Coming up, uh, the US and China resume trade talks today, but a number of sticking points remain. We'll have the latest from Beijing on those critical discussions after the break. And if you just can't get enough of Squawk Box, be sure to tune in to our very own podcast. You can head to cnbc.com, iTunes, Spotify or Google Play to have a listen and download today's episode. And for our podcast listeners out there, stick around for some more. Oh, so exciting. The latest round of high-level trade talks between the US and China begins today. According to Reuters, Beijing has made a series of unprecedented proposals on forced technology transfer. But a number of sticking points remain as Washington demands that China relax its restrictions on digital trade. And to add to the excitement, Unison in Beijing, lovely to see you as well. I noticed the trade data yesterday. The seasonally adjusted imports from China into the US uh, fell 12.3%. Maybe they just let this happen naturally rather than con uh, concluding these talks. Anyway, lovely to see you. What have you got for us? Well, Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer and Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin are in Beijing today for their face-to-face -face negotiations with China's Vice Premier Liu He. Uh, sources who are close to the negotiations have told me that the two sides have made progress, but there is still a lot more to do. Uh, they need to nail down some of the undefined terms and language in the agreement, find a way to try to make this trade deal enforceable, which, by the way, a lot of people who are following the trade talks think is going to be very, very challenging. And uh, thirdly, they need to be able to clarify how and when the tariffs could be lifted. The two sides are also apparently going back and forth over structural issues. Uh, sources have been telling me that the Americans haven't gotten very far when it comes to state subsidies. Uh, U.S. officials have, have told Reuters that uh, they're pleased that, that they feel that they are uh, making some headway when it comes to forced technology transfers, that the Chinese have put more proposals on the table than in the past. And uh, this was reflected also in the speech that we heard out of um, the Chinese vice, the Chinese premier, Li Keqiang, earlier this morning, he was speaking at the Boao Forum and uh, was putting a timetable on the new foreign investment law that addresses those forced, techno those te forced technology transfers. This is what he said. The drafting of the matching regulations will be completed by the end of this year, so that these regulations will enter into force together with the foreign investment law as of January the 1st next year. And during this process, we'll heed the input from various parties, especially from foreign investors. 
And again, if the talks here in Beijing are productive, then the Chinese vice premier is going to continue on his scheduled plan to head to Washington next week to try to continue this conversation and potentially finalize a deal. Guys? Alexis, um, let's get back to you on this. Eunice, thank you very much indeed. Uh, just on this, uh, obviously we heard um, Eunice talking about the situation in China with these trade talks. As positive as you are about the outcome of uh, the Brexit negotiations, you also seem to be quite upbeat about a, a proper resolution to the trade row. Why? Yes, uh, this is a scenario that we have planned since, uh, I would say, uh, more than, uh, than six months. We have decomposed the universe of possibility uh, between uh, different scenarios, the trade game, trade feud and trade war. The trade game scenario consists of that to, uh, to, 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 to what we see uh, currently. I mean, there is a kind of aggressiveness of the U.S. authority in uh, dealing, in negotiating new trade agreements. Uh, and uh, that aggressiveness is, is paying. And so they, 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 they get some concession from, uh, from China. And now we are about to, uh, to see uh, a positive outcome to, the, to that uh, negotiation. And compared with what I said before, this de-escalation in the, in the risk related to trade negotiation will also represent a supportive factor for global equity and for the world economy. Can I just get into that? Because if you look at the way we've had trade unfold in March, there have been fears about global growth and many of the economists don't believe even if there is a trade deal, it will do enough to offset now what is a, a slowdown or a pace that is really coming off some of the better levels we've had for the US economy and the global economy. So can I just question whether we've had the fatigues and volatility in March? That might be more symbolic of the road forward for markets with or without a deal. Yeah, you are, you're right to underline that, uh, that element because uh, actually our core scenario consists of saying that uh, we, have, we will have indeed a progressive deceleration of uh, global trade. So we were at 3.8% uh, of growth in volume in 2018. We expect 3% uh, only in 2019. But again, uh, I uh, resist on the fact that we are in a phase of deceleration with a kind of uh, safety net. And so that de-escalation will be a, a supportive uh, factor. We have calculated that, that actually tariff uh, contributed uh, by minus 0.3 percentage points to the deceleration of global trade in 2018. But much more importantly, the element of uncertainty was contributing also by minus 0.45 percentage points to the deceleration of uh, global trade. So the fact that in 2019 we will have a de-escalation of, uh, of that element of uncertainty related to trade negotiation will uh, represent a supportive factor for, for trade. When we consider the European markets, uh, I, I just wonder whether we are actually going to get any upside for some of these key markets. I mean, you look about, at the German market, there seems to be a multitude of different issues that seems to impact trade. And I, I'm not sure whether Alex is going to come back and join us for the conversation. But, you know, if you look at the numbers around Germany, they've been weak for some domestic factors around autos, but it feels like they've also been exposed to the trade winds. You get a, you get a fix, you get a resolution with, with China. Is there some natural upside that comes into the German so economy straight I up? Have a question. And, and, and if we get Alexis back, great, I've got to raise it to him. Otherwise, I'll just raise it to you, ladies and gentlemen, the audience as well. If the constructive view that Alexis had there, let's, let's go with it. Let's say we are constructive and the trade deal gets sorted out and that Brexit moves on, you know, one way or the other, uh, and that we do calm down a little bit on these bond markets, what have you. What happens to the dollar? Because Alexis is constructive on emerging markets. We know that emerging markets have got more dollar donate 
dollar-denominated uh, bonds to refinance in 2019, 2020 than we've ever seen pretty much. as a cliff edge, as many people talk about as well. Do bonds sell off aggressively and does the dollar rally? And if the dollar rallies, does that snuff out some of that emerging market ebullience? Well, this is where the soft landing or hard landing is the key, isn't it? Because the um, the, the bulls for another opportunity to re-engage with risk assets would argue that the central banks do manage a soft landing, prime among them the Federal Reserve, which actually may have to cut rates this year. If it does that, that is what keeps the dollar under control and gives you the opportunity to buy that emerging market trade without fear that you're going to be squeezed out by a stronger dollar. Mm. Uh, it's just one theory. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.